course, if you have your bulletin, that text is printed for you there as well. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word as found in the book of John, chapter 13, verses 1 to 11. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for our time together, and we pray now that you would, by your Spirit, open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, and that you would soften our hearts as good soil, such as a seed goes into good soil and produces a fruit, that we too would leave here changed people because of your word by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, sort of concluding this pre-Labor Day series, uh, two weeks ago we looked at and answered the question, what does it mean to be the people of God? And we said the people of God are those who, um, are, are, are those who have Jesus at the center of everything they, they, they do and everything that they are. We talked about as a church that looks like resting in, in that grace and reminding each other of that and reflecting that to the watching world. Last week, we asked the question, what is the Bible about? And as we looked at Hosea, we saw that the Bible is is, is essentially about redemption, a story of redemption. It is a story of love to the loveless. And so this morning, I want to ask a different question that's um, not actually in your bulletin. I think last week's question is still there. Um, And that is, why follow Jesus? Why, Why follow Jesus, period? And that's a question for anybody in here that would call themselves a Christian, so maybe a, a reminding question, like, why, why do I follow Jesus? So if you've been a Christian, a Christian for most of your life, this is a question for you. But if you haven't been, fo- if you don't follow Jesus, you're not a Christian, or maybe you just started, this question is for you as well. And I want to look at this uh, question, especially as it relates to our, to our text this morning, uh, in the context of authority. And when we talk about authority, especially as a nation, especially in our lives, that's a touchy subject for people. And I want to ask you, what is your relationship with authority? Do you, do you, do you like authority over you? Um, is that something that you easily trust? 
Or is there skepticism for you with that? When you think of authority, does it have a positive connotation or is it a negative connotation? What's the relationship between you and authority figures? Well, as I've come back to this passage many times, it has struck me how this text really addresses two different views of authority that we, we hold today. And, and first, if you will, there are some uh, for whom uh, authority is, 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 is something that's it's easy for them to trust and easy for them to respect. And authority kind of comes from this hierarchical standpoint. That is, they respect bosses, employers, teachers, because they are above them. Authority, therefore, is located within the seniority of that relationship. And in general, it's trusted. And so for this group, if they are Christians, there is nothing with more seniority or hierarchy than the Bible as far as authority is concerned. The Bible is the ultimate authority. And so when asked, why would we follow Jesus? Why follow Jesus? The simple answer is, well, the Bible says so. It's clear. Jesus says so. So we do it. That is, there are those who already see the Bible as authoritative. So whatever it says, I trust and I try to orient my life around such commands. But there's another group where authority isn't derived via seniority or some hierarchical structure. And in fact, this group is very skeptical at times of anyone in those positions. So trust doesn't naturally flow to those places just because somebody is above them, if you will. So they will test authority. They'll ask questions and be critical of a superior's point of view and direction. In other words, there will be other factors at play beyond simple structures of seniority that this group will hold before they trust that authority. One of those factors is watching what that authority figure does with their authority. How do they use it? How do they treat others with their authority? Authority, therefore, isn't located within seniority. It's located in action and experience. That is, you have to show me or prove to me that I should, in fact, trust you by the way that you use that authority. That's ultimately been given to you. And so for the Christians in this group to follow Jesus just because the Bible says so, well, that doesn't really garner my loyalty naturally. They want to know and understand the why behind it first. Why should I follow Jesus? Why is he an authority that I should trust? What does he do with his authority that's given to him? And so challenging or investigating that question will be important to them. To be clear, it's not that one view of authority is better than the other this morning. Right? They're just different. In fact, you kind of need both, especially as it pertains to Christianity. Sometimes I just need to believe because the Bible says so. Other times I need to investigate and understand. I need, if I can say it this way, to have Jesus show me why I should trust him. Why I should submit uh, to his authority and follow him. And it's as if the Bible knows this about me because it's full, full of examples of reasons why I should. And our passage this morning is one of those. I don't know which of those views of authority you are more, shall we say, heavy-footed with, but what I love about this passage is that whether you hold to one view or the other, this passage speaks to both views of authority. It actually recognizes Jesus as having all authority. All authority has been given to him because of who he is. But second, it shows us why 
we can and should trust him with that authority and submit our lives to him. And through that, it connects to our hearts to show us why we should consider following Jesus today for the first time or continue following him for the 10,000th time, wherever you find yourself this morning. So three things to guide us in that this morning. What authority does Jesus have? These are not printed in your bulletin. What authority does Jesus have? What does Jesus do with that authority? And why does Jesus use his authority in this way? So what authority did Jesus have? What does Jesus do with that authority? And why does Jesus use his authority in that way? So let's take that first one. What authority did Jesus have? When we read in verse 3 that the Father had given all things into his hands, this is a statement of lordship. Bruce Milne says, all things means just that, that his rule is complete, his lordship is absolute. So when we ask, what authority did Jesus have? The Bible's answer is clear. He had all authority. It is a paraphrase even of Jesus' own words in Matthew, where Jesus, upon resurrection, at the end of Matthew, says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and, 17, 16 and 17 will say this, for by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Simply put, what authority did Jesus have? He had all authority. He was given all authority. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So what does it mean then to have all authority? To have all things created by you and for you. Well, in the words of my children, uh, it means that you can do whatever you want. At some point in every one of my children's lives, they have said something to the effect of, I can't wait to be mommy or daddy because when I get to that age, I can do whatever I want. They are certain as ones with all authority in their life that we get to do whatever we want, whenever we want, right? We don't have to go to bed at 8 o'clock, although that sounds amazing right now. We don't have to eat everything on our plates, but somehow we manage to. We get to make plans with our friends and stay out as late as we want, although we somehow always get back by 10. To them, mom and dad have all authority, and therefore to them, that means that they can do whatever they want. Of course, that whatever is whatever serves their needs. And of course, that's, that's not true. Mom and dad, parents can't do whatever they want. But when we turn our eyes to Jesus as the Bible talks about him, when we see him as the creator of all things and the one for whom all things are created, we are right to say that he has all authority and therefore can actually do whatever it is that he wants to do. Whatever it is that pleases him. And there is no authority above him, which is why what he chooses to do with that authority in this text is so powerful. And this gets to the second point. What does Jesus do with that authority? Uh, I'm thankful for 2020 as it pertains to Netflix and it sort of 
giving new life to the show The Office because it was the second watch show in 2020 on Netflix. And because of that, I can resurrect old Office illustrations. So here you go. And I'm sorry if you don't watch The Office. But season three, episode three, one of my favorite episodes called The Coup. Our, our, our wonderful Dwight Schrute, who is the self-proclaimed, if you've watched, uh, self-proclaimed assistant manager. But in actuality, he's only assistant to the manager because he's a sales rep. This is, again, his self-proclaimed title. He gets what he has always wanted, and that is Michael Scott's position as manager of the office. And if you've ever seen an episode, you know that Dwight is a power-craving, authority-driven character that only dreams of having complete control and authority over the Scranton branch of Dunder Mifflin, especially of one employee in particular, Mr. Jim Halpert. His life goal is to bring ruin upon Mr. Jim, as you know. Uh, In a breakfast meeting in this episode with Jan, who is the branch supervisor, Dwight tells Jan that he uh, should be the one to have Michael's job and thus complete, uh, have complete control over the Scranton branch. And as Jan listens to this and is kind of wondering why she even gave this any uh, thought or attention to listen to him, she first asks him, well, Dwight, what is your plan? What would you do? Why should I even consider this? To which Dwight says, first, I would eliminate half the positions, starting with Jim Halpert. That's his plan. This is what he would do with all authority if it was giving to him. This is how he would use it. And we laugh because there are some, there's some truth to this. There's a little bit of Dwight in all of us as it pertains to authority. We use or we have used uh, authority. We've seen others use authority in ways that only seek to benefit them. In ways that only seek to meet uh, their ends Uh, the means to their ends in that way, to satisfy their own agendas, uh, to benefit um, themselves at the expense of many other people. And as we kind of look at the tragic side of authority just over the past several uh, years in our culture, we, we are not left with little examples of how authority has been misused. Whether we're talking about the the ongoing conversation of of law enforcement in this country, or whether we're talking about uh, scandals, uh, just terrible things, like the Larry Nasser uh, situation, uh, who was the uh, doctor for the uh, women's, uh, women's Olympic uh, gymnasts, um, and the terrible things that he did with his authority over 18 years to those girls. Or perhaps even Jerry Sandusky of Penn State, right? The things that, that he, he did with the authority that he had because of that authority. And we don't like to talk about this, right? In a church, by no means, is... is immune to the misuse of authority within its walls and abuse cases over and over that we see within the church. Authority where pastors of churches and even church employees use that authority in terrible ways, all to say we have no shortage of abuse of authority in our lives. And because of that, it's not hard to, to wonder or ask the question, why somebody might be skeptical of authority or even uh, skeptical of, of giving their lives to somebody that a, a book who was written, that was written thousands of year ago, years ago says to do. So how do we see Jesus using his authority, though, if we look at this text afresh for the first time, maybe? Coming back to the text, what Jesus is showing his disciples and what he's showing us is how he uses it, and he doesn't use his authority to serve himself. He doesn't use his authority to seek selfish gain. In fact, he uses his authority to serve you. 
And not just serve you, but to serve you in the most humiliating of ways. First, what what is Jesus doing in this passage? If you look back at verses 4 to 5, what is he doing? He's washing feet. Washing feet. Just a little bit about that culturally. This job was reserved for the servant, right, or slave of the house. It was customary to have your feet washed by a servant or slave because it was one of the lowliest of jobs to do. Nobody wanted to wash feet, and for obvious reasons, right? We didn't have Nikes back then, right? So walking around in sandals at best, you're going to walk in a lot of stuff, and your feet are going to be the most disgusting part probably of your body. And so how would you like to bend down and to clean that part of someone's body? That was why it was relegated to people such as slaves and servants in the household, But yet we see in this text that Jesus is the one cleaning people's feet. The one, mind you, with all authority given to him. Second, though, it's not just uh, what's going on, it's who. Uh, And perhaps this is the most unnoticed to us today. Um, Whose feet is Jesus washing? He's washing his disciples' feet. And we think of these men as great men, and, and they are great men. Right? But let's just take a closer look here. These are men who, as we know, are uneducated in this day and age uh, and, and essentially irrelevant, culturally speaking. Many are tradesmen and fishermen who have dropped their nets to follow Jesus, but who, in fact, don't follow him very well. To put it in today's language, Jesus is washing the feet of those who have nothing to offer him. He is serving men who socially, materially, economically, etc., cannot benefit Jesus. So for Jesus to wash their feet is, as one commentary writes, simply inappropriate. And Jesus should not be doing this. And this is evidenced by Peter's response as we continue along. Peter is uneasy about this whole situation. Look at verse 6, six to 8 there. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He understands the cultural relevance here. He understands how uncomfortable this is. Jesus, you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Peter is right to have an issue here as someone with a higher status, such as a teacher or a rabbi, or even a messiah in some veiled sense at this point, but to have Jesus wash his or their feet would be wildly inappropriate. See, Peter thinks of authority the way that mankind seems to think about authority. That of empowerment. Peter is ready for Jesus to use that authority to fight and to take over God's enemies, those who oppress his people thus empowering Peter and perhaps the rest of the disciples along the way. In the other three Gospels before this account, we read of of, of two disciples asking to sit at Jesus' right and left. And you might be familiar with that story. In other words, what they're doing is that when God finally acts through Messiah, this will be a military takeover of those who have oppressed us. And when that happens, we, those who are on the right side here, those who are on Jesus' side, who are his disciples, we will assume rank Right, and positions of authority. What is not going through Peter's mind at this point is that Messiah, God's chosen one, Jesus, would actually use his authority to serve his enemies. 
that instead of using all authority that Jesus has to punish his enemies, he instead is going to use his authority to serve and to suffer humiliation for his people. Which is being demonstrated in the very act of foot washing. What Jesus is referring to is the cross here that he will hang on in less than 24 hours to atone for the sins of this world. This is what the foot washing scene is a parable of. This is why he says, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. But this is how Jesus, this is what Jesus does with his authority. He has come to serve and not be served. But why, and this gets to the final point, why does Jesus use his authority in this way? Why does he not use it to conquer his enemies in a way that any one of us might expect. And I, I, as I say this, I, I can't help but think of the horrendous acts that we experienced uh, on the news today in Afghanistan at the Kabul airport. We see this in our lives today. People using force uh, in, in ways to conquer their enemies. And there's a part of us that has that in us as well because we're human. Why, why, why not? Right? I'm sure some of us have thought, why don't we just drop some bombs over there? even. And we come back to this text. Why doesn't Jesus do that? And the reason why he doesn't do that, which gets to the final point, is because conquering Peter's enemies, conquering your enemies in the way that you might want him to, does nothing for your sin. And it does nothing for the sin of Peter either. See, what Peter does not understand is that he needs Jesus to what? Die for him too in order to be made clean. Look back at verse 8. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus has to wash Peter if Peter is going to have any part with him. In other words, what Jesus is saying to Peter is that you can't serve me unless I serve you first. You actually can't be with me unless I make you clean. I have come to serve, again, not to be served, which Peter says in verse 9, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Classic Peter statement. We can laugh at that. Don't miss a spot, Jesus. But this whole story, as Jesus continues, is one huge parable of what will happen in just 24 hours for, hours for him on the cross, from the taking off of his clothes here, right, the bowing of his knee in order to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus is showing us that in 24 hours, as one pastor writes, it's not just the mud that will come off from between the toes of Peter, but it'll be his sin. And it won't just be the mud that gets washed away that, that, that makes you clean. It'll be my blood shed for you that makes you clean. And in 24 hours, it won't just be my garments as Jesus takes his garments off that come off. Right. It'll be my glory as well. This is what the parable of washing is, is pointing towards. People ask me, Ryan, why do you follow Jesus? That right there. That right there. Don't miss it. This is what he's doing for you before you have any recollection of your need for him, before you even want to follow him, when you are enemies of his, he is laying aside his glory to be put down on a cross for you. Peter, I must serve you first, and unless it is my shed blood that you run to in order to be made clean, in order to be forgiven, you can have no part 
of me. And so the question, as this third point rounds out for us this morning, is what are you running to for that? What are you running to this morning for that forgiveness? What are you running to in order to be made clean? Are you looking for atonement in Jesus? Are you looking for atonement in what he has offered? The one with all of the authority and only the authority to forgive our sins? Or are we, uh, like so so many others, practicing some form of self-atonement in our lives? To make it right, if you will. Because unless it's Jesus' blood that we turn to, nothing else has the ability or the power to make us truly clean, to truly forgive and put short. We all, every one of us, we all need Jesus to wash us. We need Jesus to serve us first and to do so in the most humiliating of ways. And the church is a people or a community who embrace that reality. And I hope that's true for anybody that's visiting this morning, that you experience that as you meet us. That we are a people who embrace the reality that if it's not Jesus' shed blood that we run to to be made clean, which is grace, we have, we have nothing. We have nothing. And therefore, have nothing to offer anybody else by way of forgiveness, by way of grace and mercy and love. And like Peter, for a thousand different reasons, right, you shall not wash me, as he says, But for a thousand different reasons, we reject Jesus' actions on our behalf. And maybe it just seems inappropriate considering who he is. And that comes back to the authority structures. I can't have him do this. He's just too too up there. And so we, we remove ourselves from him in that way. But maybe for some of us, it's simply our pride and we don't want to open ourselves to his grace. But whatever it is, do not miss in this text, regardless, he still dies for you. And why? So that you might share in his glory. That you might be made clean, forgiven, and know the purest form of love that there is, the love of God demonstrated in in his dying for you. To come back to our initial question, why follow Jesus? I think seeing who he is and what he does as one with all authority gives us much to consider here this morning. But for those who would say yes to that, like, yeah, I follow Jesus. I think, I think it's important that we move on just a little bit further with some application as to what that looks like. What, is it, what does it mean then to truly follow Jesus as he has called us? We say yes to that. And there's just a couple of things that I want us to look at to wrap up here. First, if you are a Christian in this room and you have said yes to following Jesus, and, and this, is, this, is, this is an easy question for you, let us be reminded Let us be reminded that first and foremost, what this means and what this text is saying is that no act of service will ever be beneath you as a follower of Jesus. And I'm pointing at myself here, right? No act of service will ever be beneath you as a follower of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus' service of, of you, of me, qualifies him to ask anything of us. A man who can do anything he wants but chooses to lay down that authority, so to speak, right, and serve you instead and and suffer humiliation on a cross for you gets to ask you some favors. Gets to ask me some favors too. What act of service might be beneath you this morning? And one way to figure that out is to ask yourself, who am I ignoring? Either in this church, on this campus, in my neighborhood, in this city, who, who or what dictates who will and will not get your time? Who do I avoid? What John is showing us is that Jesus did not avoid you. 
someone who had nothing to offer Jesus in the first place. Instead, he came to be where you are. And his service to you qualifies him to ask anything of us. If Jesus is willing to suffer humiliation for you, then no act of service will ever be beneath us as followers of his. Second, the text shows us that those hardest to serve are those closest to us, yet we are called to serve those closest to us first. It's a mouthful. It shows that those hardest to serve are those closest to us, yet we are called to serve those closest to us first. I might be looking at four sisters over here. But it's not what Jesus is doing in this text, but who he is doing it to. Jesus is serving those closest to him, his disciples. And as I said earlier, these are men who do not follow him well. (laughs) Right? In 24 hours, in fact, they will all betray him. You might say Jesus is serving those who do not deserve his service. Which is why serving those closest to you will always be the hardest people to serve because you know them better than anybody else, right? And the more that you know someone, the more you know their good and their bad qualities. The more you feel justified in saying, they don't deserve my service. This is what makes marriage, for example, impossible. Without Jesus, that is. Marriage is a relationship that is designed to know what? One person better and unlike any other person in this world. Yet it's a relationship that requires service to one person more and unlike any other person in this world. There is no one more difficult to serve at times than me as Ada's husband because she sees my selfishness and she sees my self-righteousness so much more than any of you ever will. Likewise, right, there is no one more difficult to serve at times than Ada for me because I see her selfishness and her self-righteousness so much more than anyone ever will. And so the only way that she can stay in the game and not bail, and the only way that I can have my thoughts of how she doesn't deserve my service in this moment trumped is by looking at Jesus and truly seeing that I didn't deserve his service for me either. But Jesus what? He still goes to the cross for me, and he still suffers humiliation for me so that I might have the gift That surpasses all gifts, and the same is true for you. Those who we are closest to, spouses, roommates, best friends, family, sisters, are always the hardest people to serve because we know them the best. And from there, we decide whether they are worthy of our service. But what this text is telling us is that Christians are never called to serve others because they deserve it. We are called to serve others because Jesus first served us. Lastly, you're not only called to serve those closest to you, but you are called to serve your enemies as well. When, what John 13 tells us is that even if you serve those closest to you, they will still betray you. Don't miss this. And that goes for your enemies as well. As we notice, Judas here in verse 11. Christians cannot serve others only because in the end, you hope that it will benefit you in some way, that it will serve some certain outcome for you, for your good. You have to, in the end, serve others because you are captivated, you are enamored, and you are compelled even, controlled by the love of Jesus to do so. That is, the source of our service has to be the humiliation of Jesus on the cross for our own sake and not the righteousness or unrighteousness of those around us. 
as a close friend said to me many, many years ago, I'm not saying, Ryan, that your enemies deserve your kindness because they probably don't, but you didn't deserve Jesus' kindness. He still died for you, and we no longer set the agenda. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that. Has the grace of God in Jesus Christ, friends, and his love for you and willingness to suffer humiliation for you, has that captivated you? So much so that it's what compels and controls you to serve those around you, even those who might be your enemies, those who don't deserve your service. Part of what it means uh, to be a Christian is that Jesus has given you and he's given me, he's given all of us authority. That's what it means to follow him. He's given us some authority. The question is, is how will you use it? And what Jesus is demonstrating for us over and over is that that authority should be used Uh, Not for your own personal gain, not to be served, but what? To serve others. What he does for us. Not to continue in our own agendas. For those who hear this and are just a little tired maybe, because maybe you just don't have anything left in the tank, a quick disclaimer, I just want to say I hear that. I hear you this morning. I remember preaching a similar sermon to this one uh, Sunday after one Sunday, and right after, as I typically do, um, I ask Ada, like, hey, how'd this go? And she said, fine. And you're laughing, which doesn't mean fine. And this was right after we had our third child, so we're, we got three kids under five. And as I asked more questions, and a very honest, though, and good thing to hear, Ada just said, and I'm paraphrasing, like, I'm tired. I feel like I'm serving needs all the time. I have nothing left. What am I supposed to do with that, pastor? (laughs) And maybe that's where some of you are this morning. All this sounds great. I just don't know if I have anything more to give right now. And so I want to say yes to that. I want to say, of course. There are seasons in our life where we are giving all that we can give, and it is okay to say, I have nothing left. I don't want that to be something we can say here as a church. I, I don't know where this is going to come from. And the reason for that is Jesus is happy to meet you there and say, I never, met, I never meant for you to match my service of you to this world because you can't. I simply meant to set the course of what following me looks like. Jesus knows that our service of others is limited. So please hear that this morning. If you're in a place where you feel like all you do is serve the needs of others all day, this text is not meant to guilt you. It is not meant to shame you or ask you to give just a little bit more. This text is here to, one, shape us into followers of Jesus that will continue for the rest of our lives. But it's also here to remind us where we rest. And there's that word again. And find the motivation to serve in the place, in the first place, and that's Jesus' unconditional love for you. And I hope you're finding that here. And I hope you're finding that among each other. Jesus is not serving Peter here, let me be very clear, ultimately so that Peter will one day return the favor. Jesus has not served you that ultimately one day you can return the favor because you can't. He's serving Peter and he's serving you so that Peter and you will know the rest that Jesus offers, which is actually the engine of our service. And that rest is found in Jesus' unconditional love for you, his desire to serve you when you had nothing to offer him. This is not only how we will even consider 
serving our enemies, serving those closest to us, which is the hardest people to serve, or, or, or looking at, at service in ways that there is nothing uh, that is under uh, or that is beneath us as a follower of Jesus. This is not only how we will consider doing that, but it's also the why behind our decision to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. It's the why behind it his unconditional love for us. And as that gospel of grace washes over us as a church, we point people less and less to ourselves and more and more to Jesus, the only true king who has served you by giving himself over to death for you. Isn't that, friends, a king with all authority worth following? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us. And John, we pray that as we see what you're doing for your disciples, I pray that each of us would see you doing that for us. And in the fullest sense, as you go to your cross, that is where you are, are putting yourself in a place of, of humiliating service, where you are, are by your blood making us truly clean when we did not deserve it and where you are laying aside your glory for the sake of us, that we may share in that one day. These things are almost impossible to believe. But I pray that by your word and through your spirit that you would give us glimpses into the realities that you have made clear to us here this morning, and that we would see Jesus as more beautiful and believable than, than, than we ever have before. And as a result, either consider following him for the first time or perhaps uh, understanding and being um, energized even to follow him for the 10,000th time. Would you give us the strength to do that just for today, we ask. All this in Jesus' name. Amen.